Welcome everybody. My name is Günther Weiss from the Department of Internal Medicine in Innsbruck and today's topic will be how I treat absolute iron deficiency in inflammatory disorders. So inflammatory disorders often result in alterations of iron homeostasis, which is called functional iron deficiency and which results in the emerge of anemia of chronic disease. Mainly pro-inflammatory and anti-inflammatory cytokines contribute to this diversion of iron homeostasis. So in the case of an inflammatory hit induced by an infection, autoimmune disease, or probably cancer, you have an interaction of immune cells, uh, specifically T cells and monocytes macrophages, which result in the production of a number of cytokines. Some of these cytokines, specifically interleukin-6, result in the induction of an acute phase protein in the liver, which is called hepcidin, and which is also known as the master regulator of iron homeostasis. Hepcidin controls the entry of iron to the body, but also the release of iron from macrophages, and therefore maintains iron homeostasis. In, this, in the setting of inflammation, hepcidin blocks the transfer of iron from the duodenum, and therefore the iron absorption is reduced. In addition, Hepcidin also negatively impacts on the release of iron from macrophages and therefore iron is retained in these cells. This effect is further proposed and, and, and induced by a reduced half-life of erythrocytes due to the function of different cytokines and the reduction of some number of uh, oxygen radicals. And in addition, some of these cytokines also induce the uptake of iron by different pathways, which at the end uh, reside in a re retention of iron into the macrophage, which is mainly stored in ferritin, whereas uh, circulating iron concentrations are reduced. This is the phenotype of the so-called functional iron deficiency with uh, high iron concentration in the macrophage, also reflected by high ferritin levels in the circulation, and low iron levels in the circulation, which then re resides in a uh, iron-restricted erythropoiesis, which is also affected by the effects of cytokines on the formation of erythropoietin and um, on the proliferation and differentiation of erythropogenesis. What is important to know that up to 20 to 80% of patients with such an inflammatory disease and the functional iron deficiency also develop true iron deficiency on the basis of repeated bleeding, for example, gastrointestinal bleeding in patients with inflammatory bowel disease or cancer or uh, menstruation or hypermenstruation uh, in young women with uh, inflammatory diseases such as systemic lupus erythematosus or also due to iatrogenic uh, blood losses as the consequences of repeated blood flow, specifically in patients with um, septicemia. The differential diagnosis between patients with this anemia of chronic disease with the functional iron deficiency and these patients with the combined anemia with anemia of chronic disease and true iron deficiency as the consequence of the uh, bleeding is very important because these patients need different therapies. While those patients with anemia of chronic diseases have a lot of iron stored in their reticulinal system, those patients with anemia of chronic disease and true iron deficiency have no iron available for basic metabolic functions of the body, including mitochondrial respiration, uh, erythropoiesis, or also enzyme function. So, how can we achieve this differentiation and how can we use laboratory markers to give us a hint whether or not these patients have anemia of chronic disease or anemia of chronic disease blue iron deficiency? But the bad news is there is no single laboratory parameter which gives us a really good insight into this. 
So we have to use a combination of those. So first of all, all these patients have inflammation, so they have uh, increased inflammatory markers. Secondly, what helps is the iron status. And specifically, ferritin might be of some help, uh, although it has one has to admit that in the setting of inflammation, ferritin is not a direct reflection of the um, storage of iron because ferritin is also a acute phase protein, which is induced by numerous cytokines. Nonetheless, in patients with anemia of chronic disease, ferritin levels are increased or normal, normally above a threshold level of 100 milligram per liter, probably a little bit higher. In contrast, and this is probably be the better cutoff in patients with anemia of chronic disease and true iron deficiency, the ferritin level is below 100 milligram per liter. In addition, there was the reduction of other parameters such as the soluble transferrin receptor or the ratio of the soluble transferrin receptor with the lock of ferritin, which gives you an idea of the needs of iron for the bone marrow. If this uh, ratio is low, then ACD is, is, is very uh, likely. On the other hand, if this is above 2, then it's very likely that you have anemia of chronic disease and iron deficiency. However, this parameter has never been studied in a prospective fashion, so we do not really knew, know about its true sensitivity and specificity, which is also true for another parameter, which is called reticulocyte hemoglobin, or the percentage of hypochromic red blood cells, which are normal in anemia of chronic disease and reduced in, in anemia of chronic disease post-true uh, iron deficiency. Another parameter which emerges from our ex extended knowledge on the control of iron homeostasis and the role of hepcidin in this, uh, in this setting is, is the determination of hepcidin. So this is clearly increased in anemia of chronic disease, but it's normal and reduced in anemia of chronic disease plus iron deficiency. So this would make them a really good parameter for our, this differential diagnosis. However, I have to admit that the uh, determination of hepcidin has not been standardized yet, although there are several analyses. And finally, we can go back to our uh, old uh, parameters like the mean corpuscular volume or the mean uh, uh, cellular hemoglobin, which are typically normal in anemia of chronic disease, but they are slightly reduced in patients with anemia of chronic disease plus two iron deficiency or they are below the limit normal. So in the combination of this, there is probably quite a good indication to differentiate those patients from each other. But this brings me to the next point, and this is the therapy. So as patients with absolute iron deficiency and uh, inflammatory disease are in the need of iron, uh, we need to substitute the iron. So there are two routes of iron administration or iron supplementation. One is the oral iron supplementation. We are oral iron intake, which is then taken up from the intestinal lumen into duodenum, transferred by the enterocyte into the circulation, and then used where it is uh, needed, specifically nipponder. On the other hand, we have the intravenous iron, uh, infusion and this iron then is primarily taken up by macrophages where it is uh, uh, degraded uh, as those iron complexes are carbohydrate shells and these carbohydrate shells prevent the release of iron into the circulation. And these carbohydrate shells are then degraded, iron is released and is then pumped via ferroportin into the circulation where it is pumped by transferring and transported to the uh, organs where the iron is needed. However, it is important to know that uh, inflammatory-induced hepcidin not only affects the iron absorption in the intestinal epithelium, uh, where the oral iron is taken up, it also uh, regulates the release of iron from macrophages to the circulation. This means that under inflammatory conditions, specifically if you, ha if you have high inflammatory markers, the release of iron and the delivery of iron to the bone marrow is significantly reduced. 
In addition to the degree of inflammation, which obviously triggers the efficacy of any iron treatment towards uh, anemia resolution and resolution of absolute iron deficiency, there are possibly other cofactors which specifically in association with anemia or may reside in an impaired uh, response to therapy, including renal insufficiency, vitamin deficiencies such as B12, folic acid, or, or D3, or a specific co-medication. For example, proton pump inhibitors block the uptake of orline, or radiochemotherapy may induce inflammation, but also negatively impact on the proliferative capacity of erythrocyte progenitor cells. So if we compare the advantages and disadvantages of oral iron treatment, uh, there are several points which are important to mention. With the oral iron treatment, uh, the advantage is it's easy to use, it's very cheap, uh, and it is broadly available. What is important that you should only use one dose once a day and not repeated doses because oral iron induces the production of hepcidin, and uh, if you take a second dose a little bit late in the day, this hepcidin then blocks the further uptake of iron and reduces its bioavailability. So the bioavailability of oral iron is one of the major obstacles. So the absorption is normally between 10 and 20%. So you need a certain dose of iron to get some iron into the body, and uh, this should be at least 50 milligrams per day. Another problem is that the absorption uh, is reduced if you have more advanced inflammation, and that it's really important that you take the oral iron on a daily basis, or probably if you don't tolerate it very well at the every second day, but then in a higher uh, single dose. One of the disadvantages of oral iron is that it has uh, some gastrointestinal side effects, which leads to the uh, germination of the therapy or probably irregular intake. And the adherence to treatment is, is low. And uh, finally, there's also the emerging issue of the effects of oral iron and microbiome. So the oral iron, which is retained, is retained in the gastrointestinal tract, then impacts on the proliferation and differentiation of uh, the microbiota, uh, with the emerge of more potentially pathogenic microorganisms. And this may uh, impact on already the disease outcomes, but may also affect the uh, inflammatory capacity in inflammatory bowel disease. On the other side, we have the intravenous iron. So with the intravenous iron, you have the ability to have a higher dose of iron being uh, taken up or being stored in the body, although only a, a minor amount of that can be used on a, on a daily basis. It's probably more effective uh, to uh, restore very uh, depleted iron stores, um, and it has no gastrointestinal side effect. And uh, if you use an IV iron drug, I prefer the new carbohydrates uh, formulation, which allow uh, high single dosages between 500 and 1,000 milligrams given at, at, at one administration. At uh, one important point is that you have a control of treatment adherence, because if you apply it intravenously, then uh, it's in the patient. So the side effect is that you may have uh, some problems if the light is not uh, in the vein, and then you may have uh, local inflammation and you may have uh, changes of the color of the skin, which are often not reversible. There's the very uh, infrequent but uh, observed uh, risk of anaphylaxis. But many patients have, uh, if, if they experience side effects, they really feel some discomfort, they feel some 
uh, chills, they feel headache, uh, they are anxious, and uh, this is often related to a higher uh, infusion rate. So therefore, I always start with a low infusion speed and increase it over time. And uh, there's also an issue with the hypophosphatemia, which is uh, linked to certain uh, compounds, which should be monitored in patients specifically if they have repeated uh, infusions, and which is likewise linked to the FGF23 and vitamin D uh, background. Now, what is also one of the advantages of IVR is that you have a, a high uh, convenience of of patients with, with this treatment. So what is an algorithm and how could you approach this? This is from patients, for example, with inflammatory bowel disease. You have this diagnosis of absolute iron deficiency. You have to increase C-reactive protein. And uh, then probably you decide the route of administration of iron depending on some factors. First of all, the hemoglobin. So if the hemoglobin is below 10, then you may uh, rather use the, or the intravenous iron instead of the oral in order to have uh, more iron uh, ingested and more iron available for aerosopresion. And intravenous iron probably may uh, also work with uh, some low-grade inflammation, but with high-grade inflammation, it's very unlikely that the intravenous iron will also uh, come to its end. If the patient has a normal hemoglobin and or has no active disease and comorbidities, you may also use the O-line. So there are some uncertainties. Specifically, at the effect of iron therapy in patients on the course of a malignant disease or the reactivation of chronic infections is completely unknown. So it could be that if you, if you add iron that you increase the sensitivity of cancers to chemotherapy and probably have a better therapeutic outcome, it could also uh, be that the iron therapy interferes with uh, the treatment efficacy of immunomodulatory and, uh, for example, anti-PDL1 therapy, as it is found that iron not only affects the growth uh, of many tissues, but also the differentiation, proliferation, and antimicrobial effectivity of immune cells, including the expression of certain surface receptors. On the other hand, it is well known that specifically malignant uh, cells have an increased need for iron, and there's also the theoretical uh, uh, possibility that iron treatment can increase uh, the proliferation of tumor cells based on observations made in several animal models. Reactivation of chronic disease infections has not been systemically studied, but it could be that repeated iron accumulation results in the re-emerge, for example, of mycobacterial tuberculosis. And what is important to know that the efficacy of oral and intravenous iron is very limited in advanced information, so you should uh, administrate these iron substances when the inflammation is under control. So this brings me to the final point, and this is the therapeutic endpoint. What uh, goals should we achieve? So if we have a patient with anemia of chronic disease and iron deficiency anemia with ongoing inflammation, um, we should uh, try not to fully normalize the hemoglobin, uh, but rather achieve a target which is a little bit uh, low below the recommendation made by the WHO for normal healthy adults. This recommendation is a hemoglobin of 11 to 12. Uh, the basic for this is uh, primarily uh, due to several studies which were done with kidney disease patients and patients with dialysis, where it was demonstrated that the normalization of the hemoglobin levels to 12 in women and certainly above in men 
in those patients with ongoing inflammation and dialysis was associated with an increased risk of death, specifically from cardiovascular disease. So no such study is available for patients with hematological disease disorders and uh, and cancer, but uh, current guidelines uh, took over this recommendation from uh, the nephrology guidelines, and this is currently the state of the art. However, if the patient is in steady state, if it's in for remission and has no signs of inflammation, then you should really try to achieve the normal hemoglobin levels, which is 12 or more for women and 13 or more for men. How can I monitor whether or not my patient's response to this therapy? First of all, is the increase in hemoglobin by at least one gram per deciliter after two weeks, uh, maximum of the four weeks. But the monitoring of ferritin may not be a very good parameter because ferritin rapidly increases with intravenous iron, but it does not increase with oral iron supplementation because the low amount of iron which is taken in by oral iron supplementation on a daily basis is immediately used for aerosopresis. So the hemoglobin should be the, the, the primary target. In the long term, it is important to monitor the ferritin to have an idea whether or not you need to uh, supplement additional iron for this patient or when uh, to monitor this patient once again how to control the iron status. What is also important that we really do not know what is the effect of the treatment of iron deficiency, true iron deficiency, the anemia correction in these patients and uh, in, in respect to the outcome of the underlying disease. Uh, what is well known that there's a benefit on the quality of life of patients and therefore we have also to trigger whether or not we give it to patients with a good uh, expectancy, but the risk of metastasis, or if you give it only in a palliative setting. So we are really in a need for prospective studies to get more knowledge on that. Finally, I would also to point out that uh, absolute true iron deficiency without anemia also negatively impacts on the quality of life of patients' capacity. Uh, iron interferes with mitochondrial function, hormone synthesis, and cardiovascular performance. Therefore, true iron deficiency, even without anemia, could also be uh, diagnostically worked up and properly treated.